This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 450. What are you creating that's valuable for an audience over the long haul? Like I'm talking about the content itself. How do you develop a a content plan, a content marketing plan that's going to help you grow sales over a, a year, over two years, over five years? Like, what do you do? What do you publish? Whether you're competing for local foot traffic or global downloads, you have to be able to forge authentic connections with your audience, improve your brand performance in social media and SEO, and supercharge your content results. That and more is on the docket for discussion today. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a habit you need to foster. And then beyond that, you need to understand how to take that knowledge you've accumulated and do something with it. I think reading is great for collecting information. Writing is what you want to do to clarify what you've learned. That's one of the best ways I know to take the knowledge you glean from books and put it into action. Well, the author we're being joined by today is Mr. Anthony Butler. He's written a book called Primal Storytelling, Marketing for Humans. And I'm going to ask Anthony to share about how his time in Iraq helped shape his thinking as a marketer. We'll talk about the driving forces of behavior that marketers must understand. I'll ask him to unpack the primal storytelling formula and lots more. If you're on my email list, you already know this, but if you're not already on my email list, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, I want to let you know that I'm giving away an Amazon gift card as well as 10 autographed personalized copies of my book, Read to Lead. To be in the running for one of those items or both of those items, all you need to do is take my Read to Lead Listener Reader 2022 survey. It takes about 15 minutes. So if after today's episode, you'll give me 15 minutes additional of your time and fill out that survey... You'll be entered automatically to win not only an autographed, personalized copy of my book, Read to Lead, but also your very own Amazon gift card from yours truly. To access the survey, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22, the number 22. readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22. My hope is to get your help in planning content moving forward over the next few weeks, months, and maybe even years. And your answers to this survey are going to help me hopefully do just that. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22. Once you submit your survey, you'll be in the running for one of my books, autographed and personalized and an Amazon gift card. One more time, readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22. Anthony Butler is the founder of the digital marketing agency Can Do Ideas and the creator of the Primal Storytelling Content System. A highly regarded expert in brand storytelling and digital marketing, Anthony graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and the U.S. Army Ranger School. He's a combat veteran and commanded an infantry company in Iraq during the invasion of Baghdad. He's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. His new book is called Primal Storytelling, Marketing for Humans. Well, Anthony, Tony, Tony, Anthony, uh, we'll figure this out as we go. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm very, very excited to have you here on the show. I appreciate you having me on. I, I've actually listened to your podcast before, so really like it. You'd be the first guest who's ever done that. <laughs> well, hopefully not. hopefully not. No, I appreciate you saying that very, very much. And I'm very impressed with your background. I want to say right off the bat, thank you for your service, sir. No, I appreciate that. Well, let me ask you related to that, how did the lessons 
because this, I think a lot of people are going to be curious about this. How do the lessons from your time in Iraq help shape your thinking as a marketer? Really? <laughs> it's, it's an odd connection, but, but I, I think the big piece of it is experiencing the extremes of primal emotions upfront and, and then seeing the behaviors that would come out of those. You know, when people are mortally afraid or they're angry in a way that most people just don't experience. Right. You know, and just understanding like how that was motivating behavior. You know, one of the key things that an officer in a combat zone manages is, you know, the emotions of the men. And I was in the infantry and we were doing house to house fighting. And it's, it's, you know, people get scared and they get angry and a lot of strange behaviors can come out of that. And it's, it's really part of your job to manage it in a meaningful way. You know, so when, when I started marketing and once I'd had the realization, that, you know, people, they make decisions emotionally and then they try to justify them with logic. Mm -hmm. And then I started understanding, I was like, okay, well, these aren't, these aren't extremes of emotions, but they're really powerful. It's like what drives us to be who we are. It's what, what drives us to make most of our purchases have to do with emotional urges, primal urges that whether we're aware of them or not, they're working on us. You know, like when you think about, hey, why did I buy the car that I bought? <laughs> well, you might say it's, oh, it's because it's, it's got four wheel drive and, you know, it can, I can fit all my kids in there and it's really safe. But truly, when you get down to the core of it, it's, it started out with how it made you feel. You know, how much does a car cost? Well, you can spend 500 bucks on a old broken down junker up to millions of dollars. You know, you buy a Bugatti on the other side, like, like, but they're all for transportation, but they say different things about us to the tribe, to the people around us. They, they make us feel a certain way. And when a marketer starts to understand more about the emotional motivation behind their audience, everything is easier. That's the big lesson that I learned. Mm. And before we get into more specifics of, of all that from the book, I want to talk a little bit more about just part of your journey that I thought was compelling. Coming out of the military, you're working a job, you and your wife want to start a family and want to be able to have her stay at home and you don't take into account the cost of living increase in I think it was what Connecticut where you where you yep. landed. And and this just isn't working out <laughs> very well financially. Talk about that scenario and how it led to what you did next. What, what were the decisions that went into that? Yeah. So we found a manufacturing plant that was hiring project managers. And you know, I made like all the life mistakes that you should never make, like all in one month. You know, I changed careers, I bought a house, my wife is having a baby, all the same month. You know, and so you know, I was pretty stressed. We get to Connecticut, and if you haven't been there, the cost of living is insane. And mm. you know, it's it's I mean, it's the Northeast, and it's like everything that's bad about the Northeast in one little tiny state. I mean, there's ranches in Montana bigger than Connecticut. The thing about it was, I, they asked me, hey, how much do you need to make? And I was like, well, just pay me what I'm paying now. We're pretty comfortable. Ooh. And it, it was like mistake number one. <laughs> so I go to work. I was working at a privately owned company, pretty small, maybe 150 employees. The owner had been there for years. A lot of really good people, you know, a lot of really, really kind people. And we got there and I start working in project management and I'm kind of learning the job. I'm learning manufacturing. I've never been, I had never worked as an adult other than the army. You know, and so I had no idea how business worked. Two months go by and I'm looking at our bank account and how much is coming in and all the taxes and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I, we're not going to make it. Like mm. I, I literally, I'm, we're not going to make it. I can't, Hey, let's turn the heat down. I mean, I was like, it, it was, it was that kind of emergency, you know, and then I was faced with this dilemma was, does my wife go back to work or do I get a second job? Do I work at night? Like, what do I do? Mm. And 
I was like, I just didn't know anything. So I, I, I took a day off work. I go down to Barnes and Noble and I just walk in there and, you know, I just put my old infantry hat on. I was like, all right, somewhere in this room, somewhere in this bank of books is the answer to my problem. Like other people make it right. So I'm looking around and I stumble just by pure chance. And I just picked up stacks of business books and things trying to figure out what to do. And I picked up this book by uh, Dan Kennedy, marketing legend, but Dan had this book, no BS guide to sales. And there's a, there's a, a passage in that book where he talks about in a lot of companies, the top sales guy will make more than the CEO. And then he's like, and you don't need a college degree. You just got to be brave. You got to be smart. You got to work hard. You got to do these things. I was like, hey, wait a minute. I can work hard. I've seen the sales guys at that company. They're all fat. They all smoke. Like I'm in better shape than all of them. I can work hard. I'll work all of them. So next day, I mean, I literally the very next day, I go to work an hour early and I show up because I knew the CEO, he like came in early. So I like waited for him at the front door. It comes in. I'm like, hey, hey, John. It's like, hey, I want to move over to the sales department. He's like, what? Yeah, the sales department. Have you ever been in sales? And he knew, he knew who, where I came from. He knew I had not been in sales. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm really having a tough time. You know, I like project management. It's okay. I was like, but I, I need to make more money. He's like, well, you know, they only make money if they sell stuff. So it doesn't happen right away. <laughs> you know, so you're gonna have to learn how to run deals, put them together, and you know, see how that goes. So I made the leap. 18 months later, I was the director of inside sales and I helped them scale, you know, wow. from about 16 million to 25 million when I left, you know, and it definitely wasn't all me, but yeah, I definitely, I drove a lot of that. That job helped me leapfrog into my next job, which a lot of weird, strange, lucky things happened. I landed at a startup in New York city. And when I got there, there were not even a hundred people in the company. When I left, there was like 700. Wow. And I ended up being their number one sales guy worldwide for a good amount of time, you know, and while I was there, I had started to work on their marketing message. You know, it's a little company and you do a lot of things and mm. they didn't quite have the sales cycle completely figured out. And that's when I really started to understand this connection between people buying things, especially a business buying things and realizing that there's no such thing as B2B sales. It's, it's, it's always B2 human. Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're selling to a person, you know, mm. whether they're part of a committee that's buying something or what. And you have, Lots of different personalities and they're driven by different emotions and they have different fears. And part of being good at sales is understanding how to navigate that. Eventually they sold the company and that job leapfrogged me to my first big marketing job. I was hired by a, a partner of that company. I had helped build a channel and it was, hey, come over, help us build a sales and marketing department. And so I made that leap and a big, a big tech company in New York City and about 18 months into it, the the board, they appointed me CEO. And so I helped them. I helped them grow. I helped them scale. And eventually I knew pretty far out that I was going to be leaving. And so I was like, Hey, what am I going to do next? And I realized at that time, I, I just loved marketing. I loved, you know, messaging and creating campaigns and I was good at it. And I decided I was going to become a, um, a HubSpot partner. And I don't know if you're familiar with HubSpot. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a marketing software. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to start a technical support company for HubSpot because I'm a tech guy, you know, and I, I know a lot about it and I can fix HubSpot for people. So I called HubSpot up. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm starting a company and I want to be a HubSpot support company. I want to be a partner. And they're like, no, <laughs> <laughs> they, they turned me down, mm. but I didn't want to give up on it. It was the idea that I had. And I was like, I just was excited. So I did what every good sales guy does. And I went out and I find, I found this big financial company 
that was willing to install HubSpot. And so then I call HubSpot up and it's like, hey, I got a deal for you guys, but I'm going to install it. You're going to make me a partner. And they're like, okay, you got a customer. Like, like it can be your first customer. And so mm. eight years later, I'm I'm still a gold, I think close to platinum by now, partner of theirs. But HubSpot technical support is like a tiny, tiny portion of our business because it's, it's so easy. You don't really need technical support. And three months into the my that very first gig, the CEO, he calls me back and he's like, hey, we like HubSpot. We're using it. Our sales team's using it. Our, our people's using it. We don't have any content. Like we need stuff. You know, HubSpot runs on content. So can you help us make some content? And that's when I got started. Mm. My very first client pushed me into a new business that I'd never done before. And eight years later, that's pretty much mm. all I do is help companies like figure out what they should publish, you know, and link that back to a sales cycle, if that makes sense. I know with part of this process with regard to helping companies figure out what to publish, you were in the past in situations where sometimes that clicked and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I think if, if memory serves, it was then that you kind of realized, well, I need to figure out what what the difference is between when it's working and when it's not working. What are we doing differently? Share a bit about that breakthrough uh, before we jump into then the content of, of the book. Yeah. So, you know, marketing agencies run on getting clients, making clients happy for a really long time. And, you know, I knew that early on, like getting a client, keeping them forever is like, that's your goal. Right. And so I, I had some clients and I had a clause in all of my contracts, especially in the early years. Like, is that not really a contract? Like, here's some terms. Here's going to be our scope of work every month. You can fire us if you don't like the work. And no one ever fired us for years. Like, no one ever fired us. Mm. And one day I get a call from a company that I thought I was like a total expert in their industry and like how to grow. And their CEO said, hey, Tony, you know what? All the, everything you guys are doing for us is well done. It's professional. It's on time. He's like, you know, but it's really not working. We're, we're going to move on. Mm. I was like, what? I was so surprised. I was so shocked. And if you can't keep clients, you're not staying in business. That's just how it is, right? It's, it's kind of a... The world of marketing is is littered with failed marketing companies that couldn't produce results. Mm. So I knew this was like the shot across the bow of like a bigger issue. And it, it really had to do with when, when Google, you go, go back 10 years and Google has consistently updated their algorithms on how does a company get organic traffic? You know, who wins the keyword searches? Mm. Where, where does traffic come from? How does it get to your website? You know, all those questions. And so a lot of companies were just, they became content mills where they were just producing content for search engines. You know, so you like open up their blog and you read the blog, like who would read this? Like no one would read this. This is just written for a search engine. Like the worst ever. Mm. But eventually, like everything, marketers ruin everything. And you would <laughs> you would type in certain search terms on Google and all you would find were these ridiculous marketing pages. And Google was like, we got to do something different. Like, how do we gauge value of a site? Mm. Like, how, how do we grade a site and and figure out like who is providing something that's really good. That's something that real people want to read. And so that's when they started bringing in all the different kind of, what do they think of as signals mm. that a, a page is valuable. When you click on a page and you go there, do you just click right away or do you stay? Do you read it? Do you click through to another page? Mm -hmm. You know, that's when they came up with this whole idea of pillar pages and having really valuable content. And that's when I figured out, I was like, okay, we're like a, we're like a factory that's just producing junk. This is junk food. You know, this is the fast food mm -hmm. of content and it's not super valuable for people. We flipped it around. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to write anything that's not valuable for someone. 
Mm. Like even if it's just one person and it's really valuable for their business, their personal life. And then I help a company produce that and it delivers value in the marketplace. And that's how they get more SEO. That's, you know, that one, that was the big change. Yeah. Writing for a human instead of writing for a a search engine or a bot. Exactly. And that, that's where the, the subtitle of the book came, Marketing for Humans. You know, and, and it's I think it's it's actually a, a shift. I see a lot more mm. one-to-one marketing. You see a lot more like really authentic stories, helpful content that companies are trying to produce that's not just all about themselves. Me, me, me. Mm. You know, it's it's more about their clients and about their audiences and how they can help and how they can deliver some value. You mentioned uh, how we we buy on emotion and then we we rationalize our, our decisions later. Talk about the driving forces of behavior, what you consider to be the driving forces of behavior that if marketers are going to be successful or going to have an advantage, they need to understand. If we want to distill it down, it's what I think of as primal urges. And, and what I what a primal urge is, so think back, okay, evolutionary psychology. Animals have instincts and those instincts equal inviolable behavior, things that they have to do because they're genetically coded. So geese fly south for the winter. They don't take a vacation to Hawaii. They don't fly east or west. They go south. Okay. The butterflies, they migrate down to Mexico because that's where they have, that's what they have to do. Okay. The bears, they hibernate for winter. Humans, we used to have instincts. We have mating instincts. We have, you know, primal instincts that, Mm. you know, help us want to be part of a tribe. You know, it's why it's why if, if you leave someone alone or you put them in solitary confinement for long periods of time, the UN is they've talked about it. It's torture. Mm. Like humans are tribal. Like we need others around us. We need to be with people. And the first part of the primal storytelling formula is understanding the tribe that someone is part of. Like who 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 do they want to be with? Who do they identify mm. with? Who are the people around them? And what's the underlying motivations as part of that tribe? And then I look at some different primal emotions, you know, that are driving behavior that have to do with, you know, if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So at the bottom, you know, you know, you need food, clothing, safety, protection, Mm -hmm. all all of those things that are just the, the necessities of life. But then when you go deeper on them, like in modern times, you know, we don't really, especially in the Western world, we're not really worried about a saber toothed tiger jumping out and eating us. You know, there's, there's no real need for fight or flight most of the time. Mm. Most of us have enough clothes, like how many shirts do you really need to live, right? <laughs> How many pairs of pants? How many coats? Although today I need two coats because it's like six degrees outside. Um, when you look deeper into why you own the clothes that you own, it has to do with tribe. It has to do with mm. the signal you're sending to everyone that you meet and how you think of yourself. You know, like like on this call, why are you wearing the clothes that you're wearing? Well, you you made some sort of a little bit conscious, but mostly subconscious choice on your clothes picks. You know, based on the image that you want to convey to your audience, you know, how you think of yourself, understanding those primal urges and needs and how they relate to tribe was one of, was a really big breakthrough for me. My wife, or she here, would tell you that the pullover I'm wearing right now is one that I've probably worn four or five times in the last <laughs> last week. I've got like two or three outfits and I wear the same thing over and over and over. And over. I think that's a, a pretty common trait of men yeah. is not not too worried about what you wear. You know, and I am one of those. <laughs> I just start at the left side of the closet and work right. to the right side and 
then I realize, hey, I need to do some laundry, and then I start again. Exactly. You know, there's no exactly. there's no thought put into it. Exactly. You mentioned the primal storytelling formula and kind of hinted at, at bits and pieces of it. I want to dig into that a little bit more uh, deliberately, if we can. Unpack the the actual formula itself first. Mm-hmm. if you would. And then I want to dive in more specifically to the three aspects of it. Sure. So the formula itself is tribe plus primal urges and emotions plus story. And then that all of those things together will help you create a primal story that is is what a brand can use to go to market with, to help them grow a social media audience. And and it's more than telling great stories. Stories are a means to an end, right? That's right. Stories are literally to help you grow and sell. You know, it's it's not marketing for marketing's sake. I'm not talking about trying to be memorable and just straight brand building. I'm talking about direct response marketing, about mm. small businesses that want to connect with individuals and sell them something. Like how do they do that more efficiently? Well, with regard to to tribes, tell us how you define that term specifically first. And then maybe along the lines of mistakes, share some mistakes we might want to avoid when attempting to grow and identify our own tribe. Yeah. So when I think of tribe, I'm thinking of individuals that have common traits that I can identify them demographically and then more importantly, psychographically. And when I say psychographically, what that means is like, what is their emotional makeup? What are they afraid of that has to do with your business? You know, what motivates them that has to do with your business? Like how, how are they thinking about the world? How are they thinking about themselves? And, and if you can easily identify them as a group, maybe they're aware of the tribe that they're in or not. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at um, Harley Davidson enthusiasts, okay, well, there's lots of different different kinds of Harley Davidson fans. But the one trait that we have is they all love Harleys and they probably don't own a Honda. You know, they, (laughs) (laughs) and and there's a lot of psychological things that they think of themselves. They think, and that they associate with being a Harley lover and owner, you know, it's freedom of the road and independence and having a good time with friends. And, you know, if you go back 40 years, you know, there's some gang members and bad conduct and things like that. But I think that's pretty much gone away. It's changed over the years. You, you probably got a leather jacket in that closet we were talking about earlier, or maybe a tattoo or two or three. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, th- think about that. Harley is so loved. People get tattoos of Harley Davidson's on them. If you get a primal storytelling tattoo, I'll send you a thousand bucks. How does that sound? You ready? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is with tribe. And I, I think the mistake a lot of people make is they assume they assume they know. And almost always, I, I I do a lot of marketing audits. I would say 90% of the time when, especially B2B clients, they talk about industry. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing business with companies that are in X business. They do this. And or if it's B2C and they're just selling to individuals, they have all these preconceived notions of why people buy, but they don't really know. They're guessing. And I would say 90% of the time, yeah, maybe a little less in some bigger companies that have spent some time on this, you know, and like really understanding who their customers are is they're wrong and they, they make assumptions and the assumptions are not their gut feeling or the owner thinks, you know, something. And then when you look and you're like, yeah, it's not true at all, you know, and you switch out the guesses and assumptions and you get data and you look at like who they're actually selling to and why they're actually buying. It's almost never the reason the company really thinks. 
Mm. You, you've reinforced something that I've just recently done, and that's a survey my readers and, and, and my listeners as I begin to want to build a community around the podcast, around some of the courses that I offer and build conversations around those things. I have a lot of gut feelings that I think are probably accurate, but I did want to go on those. So I've surveyed my right. my listeners instead to make sure I'm, I'm beginning at the right starting point and ultimately building what they want me to build, not what I think they need, because I, I've tried to do that in the past and, and have been wrong and I don't want to be wrong this time. So. <laughs> well, you know, you just hit on something that is so important. People, they buy what they want. What you perceive they need is irrelevant. You know, I mean, unless blood is gushing out of a vein and you know they need medical care right this minute, they're going to die. What they need is irrelevant. What they want matters. People buy the things that they want the most. They find a way. You know, it's it's why you'll see this all the time. You'll see like drug addicts. They're being evicted because they can't afford to pay the rent, mm. but they got drugs. Smokers, you, you'll see it. Smokers got to smoke. They're finding a way to buy cigarettes. Even though they know it's killing them, they... Spending 500 bucks a month and they can't pay the rent and they're still buying cigarettes. Like it's, it's irrational behavior. And, and, you know, and there's some addiction issues there, but really it's about we buy what we want, even if it's antithetical to what we need. Mm, that's powerful. I, I want to spend a little bit more time on story uh, before we, we move on to some other things. Some compelling arguments for the primal nature of, of, of storytelling across cultures. Let's look at, you know, something recent. Look at, look at Harry Potter. You know, it's, it's the, you know, one of the biggest selling children's books of all time, right? Across cultures has been translated into, I don't even know how many languages these days, probably most of them. <laughs> and, you know, it's sold a billion books because the story is just so, it's so attractive to children. Mm. And you know what? It's the exact same story as Star Wars. It's the exact same story as the Lord of the Rings. All three of those stories are exactly the same, where you have an unlikely character who goes on to fight for freedom and fight for his family and fight for the universe and defeat the Dark Lord, you know, the the evil, the evil one or whatever it might be. When you go back and you look at you know, you look at biblical stories. Um what one of the oldest stories out there is Little Red Riding Hood, believe it or not. Little Red Riding Hood is over 4,000 years old. Anthropologists have recognized the story structure across 70 cultures. In, in some in some cultures, the, the wolf, instead of a wolf, it's an ogre, but it's the exact same story. In some stories, instead of a woodsman that comes to save Little Red Riding Hood, it's, it's a different character, but pretty much the same character, a big, strong man. Um, <laughs> in some stories, he's not able to save grandma, and sometimes the wolf eats grandma or eats Little Red Riding Hood. But mm. the moral is always the same is that little girls shouldn't be wandering in the woods. There's monsters, mm. you know, that, hey, there's monsters in the world, even if they look like people. Okay. Because what's the core of, of the wolf is the wolf looks like grandma. You know, the wolf looks like a person. Mm. Like, what do we know about people? Well, there's bad people in the world. And if you don't believe there's bad people in the world, just turn on the news and spend five minutes. You'll find them. Well, you mentioned Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, a couple of my favorites. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but certainly the other two. I was a little late for that. Uh, you're right. They're all this. It's the hero's journey, right? You mentioned uh, Donald Miller and StoryBrand in your book. How would you relate what he teaches with what you're talking about here with regard to story? Yeah. So Donald, and I don't know him, but I've just read his stuff and love it. You know, he, he is talking about the messaging that you're using to get someone to a website. Mm. That's what he's saying. He's like, make, make the customer the hero. This is this is a different idea. After they get to your website and you want them to come back over and over again, like, what are you creating 
that's valuable for an audience over the long haul. Like I'm talking about the content itself. Like how do you develop a a content plan, a content marketing plan that's going to help you grow sales over a a year, over two years, over five years? Like what do you do? What do you publish? Like that's the difference. What, What I'll tell you is for most brands, getting outside of what you do directly is the most important part. Find mm-hmm. find something that's super important to your client. In the book, I, I divide this up into different themes that you can use, some different story structures to help you really understand how to do it. And then I break it up into four core stories that every business can build. You know, the first one is the origin story, why, right. why you started the company. And if it, if you're not a founder, you know, why was the company started in the first place? Go all the way back. I think of like Marvel movies, like the most popular Marvel movies invariably are the origin story of the superhero. It's like, think about when you meet someone new, what's the one question that you almost always ask, where are you from? (laughs) How how did you get there? Like, why are you here? You know, like, like you want to know that origin story because it's just important to us. It's one of the stories that we just always, always are important from. And then the second one is the vision story. Why does your business exist? What is it you're trying to improve on in the world? Because remember, businesses solve problems for people. Okay. You're selling somebody something, whether it's a service or a product that solves a problem that they're having. You know, I'm hungry. I need to go to a restaurant and eat. You know, I don't want to cook tonight or, Hey, I want to get stronger. I, I, I want to hire a personal trainer or or for you, for instance, you know, you're kind of in the education field, you know, you're helping business owners and entrepreneurs. And it's kind of the the take I took from, from your podcast is that you want to help them grow with valuable information, Absolutely, you know, and, and you're doing it. And, and in a, in a way that it's connecting, it's helpful. You could do this for 10 years and you'll never run out of material. You never will. You've, you've clicked on the formula. You're doing it is that it's valuable for someone, you know, and that's the, that's the whole point. On about seven more months, I will have done it for 10 years. So, Oh, really? Has it been that long? Wow. Congratulations. Plenty of material out there for sure. <laughs> um, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation about the book. I-, I wanted to say too, one of the things I really appreciate about books is when the author does this and that's at the end of the chapter, kind of bring the chapter together for you in, in a very succinct way. And so uh, Anthony, Tony ends each chapter with an insights uh, section, some, some words of caution, and then key questions. That you need to ask yourself. And I love that you that you chose to do that. I want to want to move to some questions, not about the book, if we can. Uh, but but the first one is book related, and that's to ask if you could recommend a couple of books that have impacted you over the course of your life or career that you find yourself maybe recommending others read. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you mentioned Donald Miller stuff, so Story Brand, big fan. Mm-hmm. Good, mm. good book. Really, really every marketer should read that. It's, it's a primer. Another one that I recommend to all creatives, and I'm actually speaking at a college here in another couple of weeks. And, uh, I always recommend Pressfield's book, The War of Art, you know, mm. really good. He, he's the same guy that wrote 300 and The Legend of Bagger Vance. And the, the War of Art is really, it was, it was written by a writer who's just struggled with fear and procrastination mm. and, you know, not wanting to finish projects. You know, because sometimes shipping out a project that you've put your heart and soul into, whether it's writing or a painting or, you know, any kind of creative work that people are going to judge you by, Mm. it can be scary. I went through some of it with this book. You know, I got to a certain point in the editorial process where I was like, I'm a year in and I've done a whole bunch of edits. You know, we've done developmental edit and, you know, we're getting towards the end. I'm like, is this really, is this any good? People are going to hate this. This is going to be terrible, you know? And and you just go through this kind of Mm. psychological war. And Pressfield's thing is that 
you have to ship for your mental health, mm-hmm. for your physical health, and so that you can give a gift to the world and let the world judge it. And then you know what? If it's bad, and sometimes you're going to produce something that's not good, and I, I'm guilty as charged, like I've produced all kinds of crap, okay, <laughs> and published lots of things that weren't that good. Mm. But you know what? Every once in a while, the creative process, it just dances off of your fingers and you create something that everyone loves. Well, I've, I've found it super helpful. I don't think it's crap for what my opinion's worth. I think- well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think it's especially going to be helpful to me you know, post-survey as I look to build this, this community that I'm trying to build. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been reading it sort of with, through that lens, a lot of it anyway. Well, I'll, I'll share too something that, that Seth Godin shared with me in an interview a few years ago. And that's the idea that you know, no author has ever read any of their one-star reviews or all of their one-star reviews on Amazon and then said to themselves, gee, now I'm a better writer. The point being that... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The point being that whatever we create, there are going to be people who don't like it. There are going to be people who criticize it. And the thing to remember is that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means it wasn't for them. And your job as a writer, as a creator, is to continue doing your work for the people who it is for. Seth's a genius and you know he's published lots of stuff. So I'm sure he's He's got a thick skin because he's had his share of criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he told me he stopped reading his Amazon reviews a long time ago. (laughs) Well, um, I want to ask you to describe sort of your personal knowledge management practices, if if you have any. I find that most authors do. If you don't, that's okay. But particularly with regard to uh, sort of what I call the four aspects of of personal knowledge management to notes specifically and note-taking, the collection phase or, or capture phase, the connect or organize phase, the crystallize phase, or otherwise known as, as develop and distill, and the create phase. Those first three phases coming together, collect, connect, crystallize, so that we can then create with the notes that we take from the content we consume. For you personally, what are some of the things you practice to make sure that when it comes to ideas, things that you want to remember, things you want to be able to go back to later, connect new ideas with existing ideas. So what are some of your practices to ensure that when it comes to creation time, you're not starting with a blank page? I use two technology tools. I use Evernote. And then in conjunction with that, I use another program called Scrivener. Scrivener is a a software package. It's a writer's tool, really low cost and super powerful. And it will let you create projects around a subject and then just pour in notes, pour in, you know, clips from books and you can put graphics and you write notes. And I mean, it's, it, it just was made for writers who are writing either fiction or nonfiction. I, I, I really love it. And I use it for each of my clients, like, especially if they're publishing lots of stuff. I, I personally write articles every year and mm. in 2021, I personally published over 300 articles. Oh, wow. In all kinds of different industries and to become knowledgeable enough to write an impactful article, you need to really be able to distill a subject. You know, and so I use Evernote to capture key points. And then I use Scribner to organize background information and things about stuff. Like I just finished an article about the Washington Square Park. Like people don't know 150 years ago it was a it was a graveyard. Hmm. It was a potter's field and they buried people there. There's 20,000 people buried underneath Washington Square Park in New York City. That wow. Nobody knows who they are. And every once in a while, a body will pop out of the ground and they'll have to re-intern it. I mean, wow. like, it's pretty wild. You know, just, and I wrote a pretty good history piece about it for a company and it's being published. Lots of that kind of thing. The other thing that I do is I use an old memory technique called LOSI. Oh, you mentioned this in the book. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> where, you know, it's uh, a lot of 
memory champions and memory Olympics guys use it to memorize information, to memorize facts and figures, things like that. That's been helpful for me. If you want to know more about that, you got to buy Tony's book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, I think those are the two of the three. I I would say the technology ones are probably the easiest for people to jump in and use. Mm -hmm. And Evernote's great for organizing and keeping thoughts on things. Uh, The more you and I have talked, the more I realized that I would I would be remiss not to ask a member of our armed services about their habits, uh, because that's certainly something you learn as a soldier, I would imagine, in, in all sorts of, of, of life categories. I'm a big believer in, in five habits in particular, and that when practiced, and I find that across the last nine and a half years, many of the people I interview do practice most of these, maybe not all, uh, what I call personal habits that will supercharge your life, but spell out the acronym DREAM. Uh, so there's dance with discomfort, there's ritualize your reading, there's examine your energy, there's assemble your advisors and master your mornings. I think I'll just ask you to pick maybe two or three of those that really resonate with you, if indeed they do, and 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 share how you implement those in, in your routine and your habits in your life. Yeah. So I think one of the things that a lot of entrepreneurs faced is that too much to do, not enough time. And you hear all this time management, time management, time management. I think energy management is way more important mm. and being supercharged on a daily basis, which comes back to physiological and mental optimization, mm-hmm. which means, you know what? You got to sleep. You've got to eat well. Most importantly, you have to work out. I'm not saying you got to go lift up the whole gym every day, but you got to <laughs> work out like you do. You know, and so I, I have a really regimented daily schedule. I, I and I wake up every single morning between four and four thirty, seven days a week, three sixty five. Mm. I don't take a day off mm. um, because if I get off my schedule, I'm far less effective the next day. And you know, as and as part of that is, you have one life. And I know I hear lots of people, especially young guys, like, oh well, I want to have a work life, and then I want to have a personal life. No. You have one life. Mm. Your life is blended. Mm. So when you stop thinking about a work life and a personal life and you just have one life, you realize, you know what? Hey, I, I got up at 4.30. I knocked out some work from you know from 5.30 to 6. I went I went to the gym. I spent an hour. I ate a good breakfast. You know what? Now I'm going to go take my son for a walk. I'm going to take my kids to school. I'm going to make them breakfast. I'm going to mm. spend some time. You know, I'm going to have a cup of coffee with my wife. And then I'm going to get back to it. And I'm going to work really hard, really intensely for a few hours with everything shut off except the work that's in front of you. Mm. You know, and like how many, you know, and I, I see this, you know, I've hired young people from all kinds of great colleges. I, I hired a kid from from Yale and Princeton and from Carroll College in Montana and different places. And I have to have the talk with every one of them is like, hey, listen, do you really think you can wrap your whole mind around your work with your phone in front of you? <laughs> text messages going off and you're, you're oh, peeking yeah. at Instagram and you got your computer in the background and you listen to the rap. Like it's insane thoughts. Like, like our ancestors who were unbelievably prolific, they didn't have the plague of social media and digital addiction. Like we have now turning off all the noise and focusing on your work. That's on a schedule. that's really regimented. It'll change everything for you as a creative. And I think it's important too, to your point. And, and I, I try to convince people to do this. I often give talks related to reading and, Hey, how can I read more? How can I find more time to read? Or how can I read more in less time? And, and the phone is a big deterrent to, to getting those things done. Yep. I typically schedule 
one or two, well, usually two to three times during the day where I know I'm going to dive in and, and check that. There's a startup ritual in the morning and a shutdown ritual at the end of the day where I'll check social media and email. And then maybe I'll, I'll check those things again at lunch. But in the in-between times, and, and well, really 24-7, none of the notifications for any of those are ever on. If I were to glance at my phone, I don't see the little number in the upper right-hand corner of each exactly. of those social media or, or email or whatever telling me how many things are waiting for me. I just don't see that. I mean, I know there probably are things waiting for me, but I don't, right. I'm not pulled, sucked into it with that stupid number. So smart. I, w- I was curious to know too, you, you talked about the, the early morning schedule. Having just come off of the time change, <laughs> how, how does that impact your mornings? I, I know uh, we're looking at maybe 2023, we, we do away with this in a, uh, most of the country. At least I think that's still out there and, and up for debate. Uh, maybe we do it one more time in the spring and that's it. But, but how, do, how does the time change impact you when it comes to that early morning schedule. It doesn't pe- impact me at all. I I just shrug it off. You know, it's it's inconvenient. You know, it, it messes your sleep up for a day or two. And I, I just I don't allow little tiny things to derail what I'm trying to get done. Everyone is faced with obstacles, you know, big obstacles, small obstacles. Mm-hmm. I own a Brazilian jiu-jitsu academy. You know, one of my students, you know, he hurt himself really bad and he's got to go and have surgery and he's going to be out out of school for six months and won't be able to work for a couple of months from it. It's a major surgery. And I said to him, I was like, don't feel bad. Tens of thousands of people have gone through what you've gone through. You can make it. Like, mm. look at this as an opportunity. Like, what can you do? Like, what, what's this going to give you? You know, and so, hey, I, I got to wake up an hour differently. Yeah, it's, it's inconvenient, but yeah, it's not anything to think about. You're reminding me of something I've shared here recently. My friend, Dan Miller, I first heard say this, is to ask the question, what does this make possible? When when you, when you come up against a, a challenge or a hurdle, approach it from, from that mindset. I love that. Uh, well, his name is Anthony Butler, or as me and his friends call him, Tony. The book is called uh, Primal Storytelling, Marketing for Humans. Tony, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here. Jeff, I really appreciate you having me on. And I hope people take something from Primal Storytelling. And you can find me on primalstorytelling.com or on LinkedIn. As per usual, all the links and resources that were mentioned during the course of this episode can be found on the show notes page that I've created just for this episode. That's also where you can find out how to connect with Anthony online or Tony, as his friends like to call him. It's all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 450 for episode 450. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 450. Another easy to remember URL you want to utilize today is this one, readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22. That's where you go to take the Read to Lead Listener Reader 2022 survey to help me better serve you in the weeks, months, and years ahead. One more time, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey22. And once you hit submit, you're in the running for an autographed and personalized copy of my book, Read to Lead, and an Amazon gift card. readtoleadpodcast.com slash survey 22. That wraps up this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
buy rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill.